Hey, everybody. Uh, good to be with you this morning. Uh, let's welcome uh, CARP Campus and Ventura Campus. They're joining us in the Word this morning. And then turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. We're continuing what we started last week, a series, a natural series through Ephesians chapter 3 called Don't Lose Heart. We will be in verses 3 through 5 this morning. Uh, If you missed last Sunday, I implore you to get a look at that just to see where we're at and why we're here. We believe that Paul is speaking about an experience that he had of what God is doing and revealing in the world to Paul. And for that reason, he tells us in verse 13, because of this, you don't have to lose heart because of what you see in my trials here. So this entire section that we're going over is the reason why the Christian does not have to lose heart. Last week we looked at self, blessed self-forgetfulness. The reason that we don't have to lose heart is because God in the power of the gospel gets us over ourselves and causes us to see a big picture. What we're going to see now is the second reason why we don't have to lose heart. Let's read together the word of Paul, words of Paul in verse 3 through 5. He says to the church in Ephesus, As I briefly wrote earlier, God himself revealed his mysterious plan to me. As you read what I have written, you will understand my insight into this plan regarding Christ. God did not reveal it to previous generations, but now by his spirit, he has revealed it to his holy apostles and prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you that we can come before you and open up the scriptures and find divine comfort and joy and peace, not like the world claims to give, but we can find it to its fullest extent by the hand of God. And we we do this, we open up your word, Lord, expecting to receive from the sovereign hand of God. We pray that Holy Spirit, We believing that your word is inspired and useful for us. Knowing that we cannot understand it apart from your enlightenment, we pray that Holy Spirit, you would open our spiritual eyes to receive from your word. That you would cause us to believe that this is more than just literature. This is more than just a book. This is the mouth of God speaking to the church of God about Jesus Christ. Perhaps in a church this size, there are multitudes of people going through many different things, many different trials and struggles and strife and broken relationships of all different sorts. And Lord, we need to receive from our Messiah. So we pray that you would transform this, that it would be more than just words on a page. It would be more than just ink in a book, it would be more than just a 12-point font, that it would be, and we would be like children who are hungry, coming to a table where there is being served food, and your word would be like bread falling off the table into our open mouths and satisfying us as we see in a more clear way Jesus Christ exalted and risen. Help us to do that, Lord. Help us to escape from the the, the petty and silly ways that we turn everything into religion. 
cause us to see the God-man, Jesus Christ, in a clear enough way that we would be able to follow him this morning. We love you so much, Jesus. Love you because you first loved us, and you have proven that in your word. Teach us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Don't lose heart. Paul is teaching us that we are comforted by divine revelation. Divine revelation. Last week, we looked at Paul's situation, which was kind of interesting. Paul being stuck in a dungeon, being stuck in a prison, and yet somehow not just being comforted, but comforted to such an extent that he was able to look after the needs of other people outside of prison. And our question was to ask, how can Paul, being imprisoned by Nero, being imprisoned by uh, the empire of Rome somehow be so satisfied in someone else that he's able to look after the needs of other people who are in a much better predicament than he is. It was very easy. We saw that it was given him by blessed self-forgetfulness, but that by the power of the gospel, he was able to look beyond his needs to see the needs of other people. Now, the gospel, the power of God for salvation to those who believe, is not in itself, the the, the word is not in itself the secret. It's not like the word gospel has some magical mantra property. Some of you in this building have have your own problems. It's not like repeating the word gospel is going to take care of them, right? You have problems? Gospel. Are you better? No. (laughs) Gospel means good news, and it speaks about an unraveling, staggering, preposterous, unbelievable story that God is working in the world that when we understand and step into that story, the gospel, our lives begin to change. Paul knew this and his life was beginning to change. But there's no power in just uh, reciting or chanting the word gospel. The, The good news is a story that the gospel is attempting to tell. And that is the good news that we see in Paul is that God is speaking to humanity. God is not like some magical clockmaker that causes the universe to function and then steps away for us to fend for ourselves. He speaks to the people that he has created, and he speaks, according to Paul, most surely in his word about his son. God has been speaking. He tells us in verse 3, as I briefly wrote earlier, God himself revealed his mysterious plan to me. He would say in verse 5, God didn't reveal it to previous generations, but now by his Holy Spirit, he is revealing this plan to his holy apostles and prophets. And so Paul is going to attempt to persuade you and I that our hope of comfort comes from revelation in God's word. Now, before we understand how in the world a book can comfort the people going through divorce, how in the world a book can comfort the person who just lost their job, who can't get over the hump of the economy, how how a book... How pages can somehow comfort the person that doesn't know what to do with their life. We've got to get out of borders for a second and stop thinking of it as just a book. Out of Amazon.com and perhaps develop the mindset that the Hebrews have understood for centuries. If you'll allow me, I want to take you there just for a few minutes. The Hebrews believed that the Bible was inspired by the very mouth of God through the pens of men who were obedient to him. That every word in this page, every words in this page as originally given 
were inspired by God for people. They believed this to such a firm extent that it affected how they raised their children. From an early age, your kid, if you were a Hebrew, would be learning words like daddy and Abba and mother. Alongside those words, they would be learning the Shema. They would be learning uh, sections of scripture taken from Deuteronomy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Daddy, mommy. They'd be learning the scriptures alongside basic words. The parents understanding that there was something different about this script, about these words. They would raise their kids accordingly. As soon as you were six years old, uh, if you were a six-year-old young boy, you would go into schooling, much like we would at a young age, but they would go to a school called Bet Sefer. Bet Sefer meant the house of the book. The book meant the Torah. Now, we might know it under a variety of different terms, the Torah or the Pentateuch or the law or the written law. It spoke of the first five books of what we call the First Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. From the age of six, they would take on formal schooling from the age of six to ten, learning the Torah inside and out. They would immerse themselves in it. One scholar describes this type of schooling saying that for an adolescent, the Torah is everything. Six days a week, boys would rise at 3 or 3.30 in the morning to go to the mikveh. Are in school there from 5.30 or 6 in the morning until the sun goes down. And then they would return. They would eat in the synagogue. After they ate, they would go back to the synagogue for their nightly study session. Breathing. Digesting immersed in the word of the living God. On Saturdays, it was even much more so. On the Sabbath, they would be in the synagogue all day, being immersed in the word of God. Well, what kind and to what degree is this immersion? Well, I'll tell you, by the time a young Jewish boy turned 10, they would have had memorized the entire Torah. Genesis, Leviticus, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, word by word, phrase by phrase, verbatim. Walk up to a young 10-year-old boy and go, hey, you know what? What does Leviticus chapter something and something say? Oh, well, don't build a parapet and the Lord your God. They would know the entire thing verbatim, applying it to their lives at the age of 10 years old. Now, they believed that God was speaking to them through the word. Why else would they obsess over words on a page? From that classroom, the best in that classroom would be selected to move on to the next level of study called Bet Talmud, the house of learning, where they were studying the Torah in all of its form and shape. They would now be studying commentary, the oral law of what the rabbis said was true about the scriptures. So they had that down as a 10-year-old, but now they would study what the rabbis said uh, those, those words on the page meant. They would study that from the ages of 10 to the ages of 14. Not only that, but they would go on to memorize the rest of the scriptures. What we Christians would identify as Genesis to Malachi, that's two-thirds of your book. From that age group, before they turned 14, the absolute best of that class, these are the, the Harvard potentials, those that we would consider going to Yale or Princeton, it was the absolute best of the class that would be given the privilege of presenting themselves as a 13-year-old to a very respected rabbi. Think of Paul the Apostle when he was Saul, 
being trained. He was the best of the best. In Acts, we're told that he grew up in Tarsus and was educated under the rabbi Gamaliel. So there's a case in point. As a 13-year-old, Paul, named Saul, would have been the best of the best of the best. And he would have been equipped. He would have been ready. He would have been prepared. He would have been worthy to set himself before a rabbi that he was enamored with, Gamaliel, and say, I love how you handle the Torah. And I want to follow you, not just to learn your interpretation of the scriptures, but I want to be like you in the way that you exemplify the scriptures. Only a few would be able to have that privilege. Now the rabbi also had his own purpose for picking up pupils. You see, everybody would have been running to the, to the rabbi to learn from his life. He could only select a few. And his idea of a great pupil was not just a, a young Jewish boy that could recite all of his stuff. No, his intent for picking up a, a, a 13-year-old Jewish kid to learn from him was not just to recite scripture and memorize scripture and memorize his interpretation of the Torah, but to be just like him and to perpetuate it to others. See, rabbis would read the scriptures and they would develop their own view of what the scriptures meant. Everybody believed that you were to honor the Sabbath by not working. But what does work mean? What constitutes work? Well, one rabbi would have an idea of what exactly constitutes work. And another rabbi would have a different idea. And they would develop this entire system and philosophy and interpretation and lens by which they viewed the scripture. And a young Jewish boy that was selected would say, I like the way that you have developed your lens. I love the way that you live your life by virtue of how God has spoken to you. And I want to be just like you. And so the rabbi was looking for a young kid that would not just recite what he taught him, but would perpetuate that system. And they called that system of interpretation a yoke. And so a young Jewish boy would want to take on the yoke of his rabbi. I want to copy. I want to learn from how you have, did, how, how you have interpreted the words of Scripture and how you have exemplified it in your life. I want to adopt your yoke. And the rabbi would look for the best pupils that would be able to carry on his interpretation of Scripture. And he would say to that young man, Lech acharai, come, follow me. Now, I left out a group of students way back in years 6 through 10. These were the rejects. These are the ones that, for whatever reason, were not bright enough or not sharp enough or did not have the, the gears spinning in the right direction that somehow learned schooling until they were 10 years old. But then at some point, because they were not the brightest in their class, the rabbi would come to them and he would give them a blessing and he would say, you did a good job. Now I want you to go back to your father and I want you to take up the trade of your father, whatever that is, and be faithful in that. And that kid would go back to his father and pick up that trade. And that trade might be shoemaking or it might be a blacksmith or it might be a carpenter or it might be a fisherman. So understand the words that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 4 Jesus being a prominent rabbi in that day. It says in chapter 4, verse 18, one day as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, 
And Andrew doing what? Throwing a net into the water for they fished for a living. What were they doing? They were tending to their trade. They didn't make it past, past the age of 10. They were recalled. They were told to be faithful with what they were able to do in this life. And what does Jesus say to them? He calls out to them and he says, come, lecharai, come and follow me and I will show you how to fish for people. Imagine the sense of purpose and euphoria and excitement that rose in the heart of Peter that day who as a younger man, but since the age of 10, was rejected by the school, rejected by the rabbis because he just didn't get theology enough. And he could not select a rabbi to mimic, so he went back to what he knew and started fishing. And a rabbi, when young pupils who were at the top of their game were the ones to select the rabbi, a respected rabbi comes to Peter and says, I choose you to follow me. What do you think his response was? Well, it says right there, they left their nets at once and followed Jesus. Imagine the words going through the mind of Peter, young, stubborn, Galilean fisherman reject. A rabbi chose me to follow him to learn the Torah from his life. As these boys would do that, and as they would grow in their learning of the scriptures, there would be different uh, rabbinical traditions. Some rabbis in that day, uh, Shammai, uh, Hillel, would develop what we just talked about, these lenses of what the scripture actually means for our life. What does the scripture say? I think it means this. Another rabbi would say, well, I think it means this. Well, no, that doesn't, that doesn't sound right. I think it means this, and it has these implications for our life. And Paul opens up in Ephesians chapter 3, and for the first time in verse 4, says, it is a story that very few of you will recognize, though you might get a glimpse of it. It is a mystery that is being progressively opened up like a story being dropped into your lap for the first time ever. And I am delivering you the fullness of that mystery which has been hidden from every single generation. Fulfilled not in a rabbi but in the rabbi. In other words, many people for thousands of years including possibly many of us have maybe been reading the scriptures wrong. We have a variety of ways of opening up the Bible and reading it. Here's some of the ways that we might read it wrong. Every person on the face of the planet has their own yoke. I don't mean a yoke like we would think of a yoke. I mean an interpretive lens in the way that the rabbis would have had. Every single person has this interpretive lens, this yoke, by which we view life. We can just call it a worldview. It's everything that we have put together. It's the way that we make sense of life. It's the way that we make sense of suffering. It's the way that we develop our decisions. Nobody ever arbitrarily makes a decision. No one ever just says, you know, I'll just marry that person. I don't know why, but that'd be a good idea. Every single important decision that you and I make is based on our worldview. 
It's the way that we make sense of life. And that worldview can be based on rejection that you felt in life. It can be based on your religion in life. It can be based on your education. It can be based on how you've grown up. It can be based on your social economic status. It can be based on whether you got $10 or $10 million. It can be based on whether you feel like you're a failure. Everything in your life has come together to form a worldview by which you view life. And most of those worldviews revolve around ourselves. Last week, self-obsession and self-love. How can I preserve myself? We develop worldviews from our own situations and experiences in life. And that's not always bad. We can make good decisions. We can do good things. We can save people. We can uh, help the world and benefit others and make great uh, choices. But not perfect choices. Because at the bottom of every decision we make is a heart that has been broken by our own sin. And Jeremiah would warn us of this in chapter 17 when he says, The heart is tremendously deceitful beyond anything. Who can understand it? Proverbs chapter 14 verse 12 would say, There is a a, a way which seems right to every man, but in the way it leads to death. That doesn't mean, oh my gosh, if if I... If I decide to eat this smoothie, I'll die, according to the Proverbs. No. Underlying our worldview is a system of thought that will ruin your life because we have been jacked up by the fallen nature of this world. And so imagine... Apply to the disciples as Jesus would come across again in Matthew chapter 11 verse 28 and say to the disciples, you come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Listen to this. You take my yoke upon you. You take my yoke upon you. You let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy to bear. My burden is light. He's not saying, if you follow after me, you will have everything that you've ever wanted in this life. You will have your dream job and you will have your dream spouse and you will have your best life now. He's not speaking of of that nature. And if you don't believe that, look at all of his disciples, 11 out of 12, tortured mercilessly for their belief in a resurrected Jesus. Oh, if you follow Christ, you will reach turmoil. You will be challenged by the world. You will suffer for following after such a radical man. The promise is that if you take on his worldview, you will find peace as you have never understood it. You will be like Paul, stuck in a prison and yet maintaining supernatural joy. Nothing will be able to unhinge you in this life. Take my yoke upon you. Jesus was saying to his disciples, I believe that I have the best interpretation of what you have been studying for centuries. Copy me. The Bible is much more important than you have been viewing it all of these years, he's saying. You think of a a specifically designed tool, like a wine decanter. It has really only one purpose in life, right? It holds wine. It's built to hold wine. It's transparent to show wine. It's um, crafted in such a shape as to 
uh, poor wine and for the aroma of wine. It's, uh, some of them are, are built out of beautiful crystals so that you can set it as a beautiful centerpiece on your table. There's one purpose and one purpose alone for it. Now, can you use that wine decanter for something else? Yeah, I suppose. Can I use a wine decanter to fill up my radiator with water? Yeah, I guess. But one should have the sense that it was made for something far more special. You can use this book for a lot of different things. And we do. Can you use the Bible to inspire yourself in life? Yeah, I'm sure. There's a lot of discouraging parts in the Bible, though, too. Read Job. That's not very encouraging. Can you read the Bible to motivate yourself to be a better person in life? Yeah, yeah, I guess. I suppose if you wanted to read the story of David and Goliath and somehow twist from that that you are David slaying all of your giants, I guess you could leave from that story feeling better about yourself, but, well, read Jeremiah and Lamentations. Get a different effect. Can you read the Bible to get daily answers for all of life choices, including what to eat and who to date and what job to take? I guess. Why? Because the Bible isn't made only specifically for those things. Can you use the Bible to tell you who to date in life and who to marry and what job to take and how much money to strive after? Uh, Maybe. But one should have the sense that the Bible was made for something far more special than our own story. And Jesus, understanding this, because the Bible is about him, once got into a confrontation with the Pharisees in John chapter 5, and he went up to these Pharisees who knew the Bible inside out, who memorized it from Genesis to Malachi, who not only memorized it, but uh, exemplified it to the T, even tithing uh, part of their herb rack to make sure that they were obedient to, to, to the words of Scripture, Jesus would walk up to them and say, you have missed the point. You search the Scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the Scriptures point to me. If you have read this thing 20 times and somehow missed the Messiah in the story, you have missed the entire point and you are still self-obsessing. You are still depositing your own story into it in order to make something about yourself. The scriptures point to me. And Paul, when he speaks in chapter 3, is, un, is, is, is opening up the lid of this incredible can on all of humanity, saying, this is the mystery that has been kept hidden from all of humanity for, million, for, for, for thousands of years, for centuries, is this one thing that Christ, through, God through Christ, is speaking to humanity. He is not far off. He is speaking through his word, through the apostles, and through the prophets, For this one purpose, he takes sinners and he takes natural born enemies, people who are at each other's throats. He somehow creates out of them a church, a supernatural entity by which he puts his spirit and he romances them and he causes them to be on mission to expand the kingdom of God in one of the most exciting stories that the universe has ever known. Your life is not your own. It has been assimilated into a far greater Story. You want something to live for? Stop reading your own story and start reading Christ's. (sighs) 
And even though Paul is alluding to this in full form, saying that it has been hidden over the centuries, people here and there, mostly Gentiles, would get a glimpse of this clue. Turn to Luke chapter 8. Keep your finger in Ephesians chapter 3. I want you to see it for yourself. Jesus walking on mission to heal someone with his entourage gets stopped by a desperate woman who understood that she was part of a greater story. Verse 43, a woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding and she could find no cure. Some of you maybe feel that in different ways this morning. Coming up behind Jesus, she touched the fringe of his robe or the hem of his garment. Immediately, the bleeding stopped. Who touched me, Jesus asked. Everyone denied it, and Peter said, Master, (laughs) this whole crowd is pressing up against you. Touched you. Jesus said, no, someone deliberately touched me, for I felt healing power go out from me. When the woman realized that she could not stay hidden, she began to tremble and fell to her knees in front of Jesus. The whole crowd heard her explain why she touched him and that she had been immediately healed. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has made you well. You go in peace. In the first century, Jewish men would craft their garments which in Hebrew is kanaf, which speaks of the hem of the garment, which is the very edge of it, where they would attach tassels according to the law in Leviticus, which reminded them of the law of God. Even their clothing remind them of the word of God. They would describe this hem of the garment or the corner of the garment as kanaf, which could also mean wings, which made more sense after the time of Jesus as, people, as the Jews would develop these beautiful prayer shawls that they draped over their shoulders with the tassels. And as they'd walk around, you would actually see literal wings in the tassels of their clothing. And it says in Luke chapter 8 that that this woman reached out and grabbed the hem of his garment. I don't know about you, but if I had an incurable disease and I saw Jesus 20 feet away, I would not grab his clothing. I would go straight for his sternum, knock him over, and hug him until he blessed me. (laughs) Woman grabs the hem of his garment. She doesn't even touch Jesus. She doesn't even touch Jesus' clothing. She touches the clothing that's touching the clothing that's touching Jesus. And somehow, supernatural power zaps her and transforms her for the rest of her life. Now, why would she do that? Why would she grab the corner of his garment? I I don't know. At some point, it's just mere speculation. Perhaps she couldn't get through his entourage to grab Jesus, and that's all she could, she could grab. Or maybe she tripped over a rock, and as she was falling, she gracefully grabs the corner of his garment or perhaps she being a Hebrew woman who's very familiar with the scriptures saw something more in him than just a divine healer perhaps she understanding the Torah and having been very familiar with the scriptures would have recalled the prophetic words about the Messiah Perhaps she thought of Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, 
where it prophesied that for those who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. Kanaf. She grabbed his wings. And something about what she did, something about her faith, caused Jesus to stop dead in his tracks, saying, somebody touched me. Disciples, stop. <laughs> you are surrounded by hundreds of people. What are you talking about? You got, you got touched. You cray-cray. <laughs> no, somebody deliberately touched me. Turned around, the woman confessed. Is it possible that this woman saw in him more than just a magic genie that could heal her sickness, but she believed the prophetic utterances from Genesis to Malachi that this was the one the scripture spoke of, and she jumped out of her story to join his? Very few times is Jesus ever stunned by the response of a human. Usually when he is, it's because they believe that he is the Messiah. And Paul would say in verse 5 and in verse 4, God was kept, kept this hidden except for a few people throughout previous generations, but now by his spirit has revealed it through his apostles and prophets. And it's that gospel story that when you tap into it, the, uh, the apostle Paul would say in Romans, I am not ashamed of this gospel story. It is the power of God for salvation to those who believe. It is the story that when you jump into it, it begins to transform not just you, but everybody that you touch and influence in your life. And it begins like divine streams of water to begin to soak into the community that you are a part of and turn dead people into a church. And you don't tap into that divine power by repeating Jesus' name and Jesus' name and Jesus' name, gospel, gospel, gospel. Paul tells us directly in verse 4, how do you tap into the mysterious plan that transforms and changes lives? Verse 4, as you read what I have written, you will understand my insight into this plan. Paul is straight up saying, you must read the scriptures. Brothers and sisters, there is no hope of growing in your faith apart from reading the word of God breathed. There's absolutely no way of knowing the Messiah, Jesus Christ, except that faith come by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. There is no way to experience supernatural comfort and peace except by, which, uh, except by the way that God has communicated to you freely. We are in the middle of an unfolding, very powerful and dramatic gospel story in which the Messiah is turning the world upside down and he calls you to engage in it by reading the story and living it out. And though you two were rejected, just like Peter and Andrew, a rabbi has come to you and said, you have not chosen me. I have chosen you. I have chosen you to follow me and learn from my life in the scriptures why your life is worth living. Friends, you might, might stumble over some of the details. You open the Bible to Leviticus and you trip out over some of the verses and that's okay. If that's you, turn to something you do understand. Turn to the gospel of John. Turn to the gospel of Luke. Turn to Ephesians. Turn to something where you can read it and you say, I, I see the Messiah right there and I want to be like him. 
And when you do that, I promise you by the authority of God's word that you will change from the inside out. You won't have to follow a list of rules in order to change the shell of your self-obsession. Christ will enter into you, into you and change you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul said, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world or to the pattern of this worldview or to the pattern of this yoke, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And when you do that, when your mind is renewed by the word of God, you will know what God's will is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Your heart is changed and softened and converted by the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word. Peter would say to the church, you have been born again, not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God. The gospel I preach to you. Get into the story. What's the story? Open up the book and read about what Jesus is doing on mission in the world. Starting with you. He teaches you how to live and judge well like him. The psalmist would say, I believe in your commands. Now, Lord, teach me good judgment and knowledge in them. He teaches you how to pray. John would say, if you, uh, Jesus would say in the gospel of John, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want and it will be granted. Take that promise to the bank. You can't unless you know what to pray for. Are you discouraged in this life? The psalmist would say in Psalm 119, verse 92, God, if your instructions had not sustained me with joy, I would have died in my misery. Are you discouraged? There's comfort for you in the word of God. Are you not growing in your faith? Are you desiring to be more like Rabbi Jesus, the God-man? Jesus himself would pray in John 17, 17, Father, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Paul would say to Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Are you overwhelmed with the yoke of the world? Are you downcast? Your joy is wrapped up in the Messiah, which you receive through the medium of his word. Paul would say to the Thessalonians, you receive the message with joy from the Holy Spirit in spite of the severe suffering it brought you. In this way, you imitated both us and the Lord. Are you losing? Are you missing out on purpose in your life? Jesus would tell a parable in the Gospel of Matthew. The seed, the word of God, fell on good soil. It represents those who truly hear and understand God's word and produce a harvest. Are you feeling empty? The word of God provides life-giving power to you because of the Messiah. The psalmist would say in Psalm 119, 93, I will never forget your commandments, for by them you give me life. You know what the word of God does? It doesn't just give you a list of 12-point fonts to follow and memorize. It doesn't just give you a list of doctrines that you can kind of put in your pocket to feel better about yourself. It exposes you to a Messiah that is going to transform you from the inside out and everyone that you reach and touch through discipleship. And this is the way that God is choosing to renew the cosmos from little old me and you to greater Santa Barbara and Ventura and Carpinteria to the world 
to the stars, to the sun, to the moon, and everything that sin has touched and tarnished. He has given us a plan, and he has said, I am excited to bring you along for it. But we must tap in to the words of our rabbi. And the first way that we do it is not by trying to get busy, but opening up the scriptures to enjoy the Messiah. Your entire existence revolves around enjoying your God. What is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength. Open up the scriptures to enjoy the Messiah. And you know, perhaps this morning, maybe it's too overwhelming to think about opening up the scriptures, even at this point, because you are going through difficulty in life, you're going through confusion, you're going through a season or a moment of uncertainty or unpredictability or just trouble. You can't even at this point think about what it would mean to disciple other people in the way of Jesus, and that's okay. We're not in this building this morning to disciple one another. We're in this building to enjoy Jesus together. And if I can leave you with anything this morning, I tell you in the name of Jesus Christ, in the next few minutes that we have as we worship through song, be like that woman. Go for the hymn. Here's what the hymn is for you and I. It's us coming to a place where we say, I am so sick, I am so insufficient, I am so weak, and I'm so lousy in and of myself, and I cannot get better by anything that I have tried to do. But I have seen a greater person. I have seen the real hero, and I have seen a champion. And you bow in humble self-forgetfulness and repentance, and you grab a hold of the hem of his garment, and you say, you will now be my champion and my rabbi, and I will follow you. Teach me to enjoy you in the name of Jesus Christ, and to teach others how to do the same thing. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for the story that you are unraveling across the coastlands. Thank you for the privilege that we have of meeting together in buildings across the coastland, numbering in hundreds of people without any fear of being trampled on by Rome. And yet, Lord, with the ease and the comfort that we have in worshiping you, perhaps we have fallen too much into a stagnant lifestyle and an apathetic worldview, and we're praying that, Christ, you would remove our yoke. You would remove the yoke that we have put on ourselves to make something out of our own life and we would put on the yoke of Jesus Christ, which you promise is the one of peace. I pray that in this house, as men and women gather together and sing and pray and receive from you, Lord, there would be men and women who decide, even for the first time or for the tenth time, I choose to follow after Christ. There's no looking back in this house. You are my champion. You are my hero. And I pray that in doing so, you would heal us. You would cause us to enjoy God and to glorify him in this place. In Jesus' name.